One of the main reasons we planted this church almost 10 years ago now is because um, God had been working in my heart and I was trying to, you know, sorting through like, what do I love to see and what do, what do I want to be part of? And, and I think my conclusion was the thing I love to see and the, that I love to be a part of is lives being changed. I want to be in, in the front lines where, where people are making decisions and they're following after God and he is working in their hearts and he is shaping them. I, I love to see uh, people be redirected. They're on this path and God gets a hold of them and they start going down this path. I love to see marriages get healed. I love to see people come clean from addictions. I, I love to see the transformation personally that people experience that then uh, bleeds out into the rest of their life and leads to uh, systemic or maybe societal or city transformation. I love to see people get enthusiastic uh, about their faith. The, the word enthusiasm actually comes from a root like enteos, which means in God. So enthusiastic, if you say I'm enthusiastic, really what you're saying is like I'm excited in God is kind of how, it's kind of what that word means. And so I love, the, I love that idea that people would be enthusiastic, that they would become excited in God, that they would be uh, filled with him and be transformed by him and, and start to share that with other people and, and to see lives come alive. Um, I love to see the message of the gospel, the heart of our faith, uh, work people over and, and, and transform them. And so today, we're going to start into a new series called Rooted, and we're looking at a book in the New Testament known as Colossians. And as we get into this, we're going to see that the author talks to, to, the, to the audience who's reading this. It was actually written as a letter. The recipients of the letter, Paul, the author, talks to them and says, you need to understand the gospel. And he kind of gets into that a little bit with them. And the gospel is this idea that gets a hold of people and, and actually transforms them. Um, and, and so I think this is going to be a really good study uh, for us for a couple reasons. Number one, if you are a follower of Jesus then you reading through a book of the Bible just all the way through as we're going to hear in the next six weeks is a good thing. You'll go back and rediscover some things you've forgotten. You'll maybe recover some things you had lost. You will, you will, it'll maybe hit you and challenge you and push you a little deeper in, in ways that maybe you hadn't been challenged before. And so I think these next six, seven weeks leading up to Easter are going to be really good for you if you are a follower of Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus and you are just here because you accidentally walked into the bird theater or because somebody invited you uh, and said, hey, just come out and check this thing out here, uh, I think this is really good for you too because the, the, the letter of Colossians is so like foundational. This is like basic Christianity, like let's explain it to you at the core. And so this is going to be really good for you to hear what Christianity is all about, because Christianity in America gets lumped into this like moral majority, evangelical, political thing that is cultural, but isn't actually the heart of the thing. We get all into, we mix sort of the, the religion and the politics and the laws and all this stuff. That kind of gets all lumped in together, and it's very easy from the outside to be like Christianity, eh, it's that political sort of thing, when it's really not. The heart of it is a, is a movement. It's a relationship, a loving relationship uh, with, with God. And so hopefully as we go through this letter, it'll help you start to see some of the building blocks of that thing. And then you can decide, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can decide, okay, is this real? Is there anything to this? Do I really want to get into this or, or not? So uh, the background of the letter, we're reading Colossians, and the Apostle Paul was a guy who planted churches. He was like a missionary in a sense, and he would go around, all around the Mediterranean, and he planted churches. And there's a church that has popped up in the city of Colossae, which is in south-central Turkey. 
uh, modern-day Turkey. It would have been like Asia Minor in that, in that time period. And this church has started in, in the city of Colossae. And Paul actually didn't start the church. A lot of the letters he writes in the New Testament are to churches that he started. He didn't start this one. In fact, his friend Epaphras, uh, he started the church. He went there, found some people. They started gathering together, these new believers in Jesus. And, and Epaphras comes to see Paul, who's in prison, and he, and he brings a report. He said, hey, man, at Colossae, it's going really well. Here are these believers. And Paul gets excited about that. He prays for this new church, and he writes a letter to them to encourage them and say, like, good job, really excited about what's going on. Here's just a couple thoughts to keep in mind as you're venturing into this new faith. And so that's, that's sort of the background of the, of the letter that, that he writes. And I want us to jump right into it uh, in chapter one. We'll put it up on the screen. April just read this for us. Listen, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Notice it says to the saints and faithful brothers. That word brothers is Adelphoi, and it could also be, you could also use it to say siblings, just family. And notice that Paul, who's never met these people, refers to them as family right away. That's, that's actually not a small thing. We should probably think about that for a second because the truth is in Scripture uh, and in Christianity, what you've always seen, and this goes from Jesus, this is Paul, this is all of them, they basically say, look, your, your family of the church actually supersedes your nuclear family. And this should challenge us as Americans because we tend to idolize the nuclear family, mom, dad, the kids, the dog, the, the fence, the whatever, like that whole thing, we, we make that the ultimate and that was not the case in Christianity. They didn't look at it that way. Jesus didn't look at it that way. Jesus was single. Paul was single at this point. Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians, if you're single, that's a good thing. No one in the ancient world thought that. They weren't teaching that being single was a good thing. And the church comes along, and we're like, no, we are a family here. We're brothers and sisters. We're in this thing together. I talked to a friend who was going through a hard time, and I, and I asked her, I said, hey, and she was just, really in some tough stuff. I said, hey, do you have um, anyone around you? Do you have, I said, do you have family here in town that can help you? And she's like, yeah, yeah I have some or whatever. And, and, and I, I feel like I have that, I asked that question to a lot of people who are going through serious stuff. Someone's died, there's, there's pain, there's disease, whatever. I asked them, hey, do you have family here in town? And what I should have said is, oh no, you have family because you have us. You have, you have the church, so we're here. We're here to be Family. It doesn't matter if flesh and blood happens to live nearby. We're willing to be family and walk with you through, through pain. So right away in, in two verses here in the, into the book, it already challenges what we think about family in America. We don't have time to, we could probably do a whole thing on that. We're going to keep moving on to verse 3. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Paul says, hey, man, we already pray for you guys. I've never even met you guys, but I'm praying for you, uh, do, doing that a, a lot. And he says that you guys have hope. I'm, I'm hearing great things about your community, about your church, about how it's going, and you have hope. And that hope comes when you heard the gospel, is, is what he said. Now, what is the gospel? 
That's not a word I use a ton when I'm up here um, because it's a loaded word for people. If you said the gospel to the average person on the street, say, what is the gospel? People might say, like, I think it's related to church. Um, it's a radio station. I know there's a radio station that plays gospel music. That's like a genre of music, so I guess it's that. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's a couple of ideas that we might have floating around gospel, but we don't really get what it is. And it's, and it's pretty important. Paul's like, man, the gospel is the thing that has brought you hope. So let me just explain it so that we understand it. John Stott gives what he calls a four-chapter version of the gospel. It kind of explains the whole picture. I want to give you just the four categories. He says, the gospel is like this grand narrative of, of the story of humanity. It's the story of us uh, throughout history as told through the scriptures. So the gospel starts with the creation of the earth, Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates the heaven and the earth, when God creates the land and the animals and the plants and the stars and the moon and all of these things, when all of them are put together, that is the creation, that is the start of the story. And the Bible does not explain in Genesis 1 and 2 specifically how it's done. It doesn't get into all the nitty-gritty, science-y sort of details about molecules and arranging atoms and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't do that because it's not trying to answer science questions that we kind of want to know now, but it's not trying to answer that. The Bible is trying to answer who did this and why. And the answer in Scripture is God, this creator, heavenly Father, created us and everything we see how he did that, that's not the point. It's, how he, it's, why he, it's who did it, God, and why. He did it out of his great love for us. And he creates Adam and Eve, and he puts them in this place that is paradise. It is like San Diego weather. It is like beautiful trees and flora and fauna and the whole thing and the waterfalls and the whole deal. It is a great place to be. They have animals. They have a relationship with one another. They're told to take care of the animals, be fruitful and multiply, just enjoy things. There are no work deadlines. There's no pain. There's no anxiety. It is great until they blow it, which is the second part of the story. It happens pretty quickly. Genesis chapter 3 is called the fall of man, where Adam and Eve are, are um, seduced by another character that enters the story, Satan, and they, and they eat from a tree they're not supposed to eat from. And, and then it brings about all sorts of things. It brings about shame. It brings sin into the world, which ultimately leads to death and destruction. In fact, their own children, one of them kills the other. Like it starts to go off the rails pretty quickly and pretty badly. And all of the pain, death, destruction, um, suffering that you experience today has its roots all the way back to this thing called the fall. That's the story traces all the way back there when that couple blew it. And, you know, I'm sure we all have reasons that if we could meet them, we'd want to slap them and be like, what were you thinking? Why did you blow this for the rest of us? But, but that's, that's where it traces back to. And God looks at that and goes, okay, there's now a separation. People have sinned. They've blown it. They've messed up. And there's a separation between me and them because I was holy and perfect. I am holy and perfect, and they're not. Now they're kind of a mess. And so God makes a way for us to be back into a right relationship with us. He sends his son Jesus thousands of years later, uh, 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes to earth and he, and he lives and he, he walks the earth and he points people to the, back to their father and to their creator and says, this is God, this is how you can know him, this is how you can be in a relationship with him. And he teaches them about the God of love. And you'd think that would be really popular, that everybody would want to learn about the God of love, but not everybody wanted to learn about that. Lots of people followed Jesus and they loved him and then there was a whole crowd of people that wanted him dead. And so eventually Jesus is killed for this and he is hung on a cross and he dies 
Now, let me be clear about this because people say all sorts of stuff about this nowadays. We're like, Jesus was killed by a toxic mix of politics and religion. Jesus was killed because people were overly religious and and legalistic, and it's a problem. And Jesus was killed by the oppressive systems of the Roman government. Jesus died because he wanted to die. The, 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 the gospel, the, the, the Bible writers who wrote about it are clear to point it out that Jesus is orchestrating his own death. He knows what's happening, he knows what's coming, and he's willingly dying on a cross, a horrible, brutal public execution. He is willingly doing that for our sin, for every way you've blown it, for every way I've blown it, for all the ways we've messed up. Jesus is dying for that, to redeem us, to buy us back for God. That's what's happening there. And a lot of times when people say the gospel, they basically say, the gospel's good news. The good news is you're terrible. I was like, this doesn't sound so good. <laughs> and Jesus paid for it, and now you're not terrible. Cool. But we just minimize it. There's a fuller picture to the story. So the fall, the redemption that Christ has bought us back for God, and we can be in a relationship with God again. And then there's this end to the story. If you go to the end of the Bible, it kind of where this whole thing is heading is this future focus where we're looking out in the future and going, okay, God is going to restore all things. God is going to make things right again. As it was in the beginning when things were perfect and paradise and all that, God is going to make that happen again. There's going to be a time coming when you and I are going to dwell beyond our lives here, but in eternity, in paradise, in a physical place with God. And, the, and, and what it says about Scripture is, there will be, what it says in Scripture is there will be no more tears, there's no more sorrow, there's no more pain there. And the older I get, the more that matters to me. And maybe you feel the same way. The more I'm surrounded with what a complete cluster this world is and what a mess and what pain there is and what suffering there is. When I'm surrounded by that and the older I get, the more I see it in in friends and family. And when I see the brokenness, I'm like, God, could you come fix this now? When is this going to happen? When does the restoration take place? So the gospel really is that entire, entire story. And that entire story runs counter to the story of our own culture. It runs counter to the American narrative about what life is about and where we're going and what matters and what doesn't matter and what is the meaning and what is the purpose of all this. The gospel actually runs counter to that and challenges our secular ideals, our ideas about consumerism, our ideas that, you know, happiness is the most important thing and you should pursue happiness. Like, the gospel challenges those things because our culture is going to pitch us various narratives and, and we'll pitch those things pretty hard. And the gospel challenges those, and it gives us, Paul says, that it gives them hope. That's what he told the church. He said, this gospel has given you hope. If you are a follower of Jesus in this room, then I want to say, like what Paul's saying here, this definitely applies to you. If you've given your life to him, you have hope. You have hope because you know that when you die, there's something else coming for you, that This life with all that it is for however many years you get, this just isn't the end. You you, you have hope, and and we need to remember that. I've got 30 minutes a week to remind you of it, but this is the kind of truth you need to get in front of you every single day because it's so easy to forget and just wander off and and forget where this whole thing is going. Here Here is the truth for all of us, okay? You're going to die. That is the, like, it's an unchangeable, unalterable truth of you. Like, here's the reality. One day, either I'm going to preach at your funeral or you're going to attend mine. No, no one here gets out alive. That's the reality. And so what do you, what do, you do with that? Do you say, well, 
I'm going to die, so, you know, YOLO, FOMO, any of the other O ones that we've got, like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do the best I can with all that I can because I'm just, you know, I'm just here and I'm going to be here and then I'm gone. I'm just going to burn out brightly and I'm just going to, I'm a shooting star, man. I'm just here for a minute and then I'm gone. Or do you say, no, there's, there's like a longer view here. I'm actually meant for something longer and I've got a future and I've got a hope. And so should I be preparing just for retirement here? Like, is the goal of life to end up in Florida? Is that where this goes? <laughs> Is that like the waiting room for the next, or is the goal to, I grew up down there, I'm, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, or is, is the goal to live for what's to come? Um, Paul points them and says, your hope is in the gospel. Your hope is in that you are jacked, but that God has saved you and that God actually loves you. You have hope there. Where, where's your hope? That's my question. Is your hope for your future in your money? If I make enough money, if I squirrel it away, if I'm a saver, then I'm going to be fine one day and I'll be able to retire comfortably or whatever. Is that your hope? Is your hope in 401K? Is your hope in your health? If I do enough yoga and eat enough of the right kind of foods, I'm going to be healthy? You can be super healthy and stretchy and then you'll still die. You'll just be limber. They'll just be like, this guy, it's easy to get him on the stretcher. It's so easy, you know, like, What? What are we doing? And look, I'm a fan. I'm a fan like staying in shape and being healthy and like I'm not, I'm not, but, but think about that for a second. Is that your hope? Is that where you think this goes? Where, what's the end of this thing? How do you look out into eternity and say, yeah, this is probably gonna go well for me? What are you basing that on? Where is your hope? For a lot of people, our hope is, man, I'm, I'm like a pretty good guy or a good girl. You say, I'm, I'm a good person. So my hope for the future is not the gospel, what Paul's point is too. My hope for the future is that I'm, I'm just like good. And so if, if there is a God, if there is a heaven, if there are any of the things you're saying are true, Chris, then I'm probably in because I'm pretty good. But like that sort of begs the question, right? Like good compared to who? Good compared to what? What standard are we using here? Are you nicer than your neighbor? Are you nicer than the kids in class? Are you a good person compared to your coworkers? And then it's like, if, if God is real, is, is that the standard he uses? And are you sure? Are, are, is God like, you can come into heaven because you were the nicest person on your block, in your cul-de-sac. It was like, you and those other people kind of jerks. I saw them. You are great. Is that, are you sure? I mean, is that what God does with us? Are we staking our eternity on the fact that we're a little nicer than our neighbors? And we're sort of hoping that God grades on the curve? The gospel, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, that grand story challenges all of that. And it says, here's the truth about you. You're not good. No matter how many merit badges you have, even if you're an Eagle Scout, you're not good. And yet, you are incredibly loved. In spite of all of your brokenness and in spite of all of our flaws, we're not good, but we are so loved. That's, that's the gospel. So Paul gives us some of the implications of this, continuing on, verse nine. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, this is what he hopes, okay, these new Christians, he said, this is what I'm, I'm praying for you, 
asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Keep in mind, Paul writes this to Christian people. And what is he praying? He's saying, and his prayers are, I pray that you're filled with the knowledge like, uh, of the gospel. I've not, I'm asking that you're filled with, the, with God, uh, knowledge of God's will. You have spiritual wisdom. You have understanding. He's praying for all these things. Basically what he's saying is, I'm praying that those of you who claim to get it will really get it. I'm praying that you dive deep into this stuff, that you don't just show up, get baptized, say, like, I'm in heaven now, I'm good, and then just kind of check out. It goes so much deeper than that. And how many people are like, basically, they sort of approach the God thing like it's a transaction, like, what are the minimum entrance requirements I need to have to get into heaven? Do I need to get baptized? Fine. Do I need, like, a number two pencil? Fine, I will check the thing and do the thing, got my salvation papers and my card, and I'm out. And Paul's like, no, I'm, my prayer is that you guys really get this. That it's not just a head, oh yeah, I understand it. Oh, I could tell you a story about Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He's like, no, let's dig down deeper into that. Dive into it and be filled with knowledge and understanding well, that knowledge of the gospel, um, it, it does some things for us. Um, and I think it's why Paul pushes us into it. Number one is this, the gospel retrains and restrains us. See, our culture has a certain way of thinking. And if you grew up in America, some of this stuff is just so baked into who we are. Like, I've heard it said, like, sort of an anthropological study, like, if you grow up in America until you're, like, 20 years old, 25, and then you go live in Africa for 40 years, you're still going to think like an American, like, you can't not think like that. It's been so ingrained. So our culture has all these ideas about freedom and about diversity and about marriage and about, you know, just you name it. Our culture has sort of this underlying, it, 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 it like gives these messages to us about what these things mean and why they matter. Our culture has a story that it, that it tells. Um, and, and we've learned these things since we were little. They're, they're really so subtle. It's the kind of thing where you sort of go, well, I mean, everybody knows that, whatever it is that everybody knows. And, and, and what we're saying is, man, I, we're basically, when we say everybody knows, we're basically saying, I know this because I've heard it since I was very, very little. It's like baked into me. And the gospel challenges the values of our culture. It challenges the narrative about what all, all of those things mean. Paul understood this. Paul was a Jew, and, and he was very Jewish. He was like super Jewish. Like all about it, all about keeping God's law, all about following all the rules perfectly and being a good Jewish boy and, and learning and studying and memorizing the scripture and all this stuff. That was Paul. And God got a hold of him and said, you're missing the heart of the thing. You're, you're so busy chasing all the rules, you're missing the heart. And one of the things that was really a struggle for Paul and, and really for a, a, a lot of these first Christians were, for a Jew, you think non-Jews are dirty, the Gentiles, what they're called. So for a Jew in the first century, the Romans are, are thought of as like pagan, dirty. They actually called them dogs. They had these you know, phrases that they'd use like, oh, those people are unclean. You shouldn't be. We are, we are God's people. Those are not God's people. And the gospel challenged Paul, and Paul finally got it, as did Peter and others. They finally got it. Oh, wait. 
God doesn't just think I'm special. God actually loves those people too. The image of God is in those people too. And, it, and, it, and you see in early Christianity that they're transcending race and culture and ethnic background. And they're saying, God has a heart for those people every bit as much as he has a heart for me. The gospel challenged Paul and it challenged the narrative of the culture that he was living in. And he was able to see Gentiles as people that God loves. And for us, this gospel story challenges our consumerism, our, our ideals that bigger, better, more, that we need to buy everything and we could just, you know, like it challenges that. It challenges our Darwinian survival of the fittest. We're just mammals, you know, and the, the, the strong eat the weak. It challenges that stuff and says, no, you need to have a heart for the vulnerable. No, you need to, un- you need to see the image of God in everyone that you meet. The gospel challenges these things. And it retrains our thinking on, on those things as, as we dive into it and keep reading and studying. The gospel also restrains us. You and I have desires in us that are broken and disordered and wrong. There's a conversation I have with my children about theirs. When they're little, you're like, stop it. You're being, you know, don't punch your brother, whatever, right? But as they get older, the conversation shifts and you go, what in you wants to do that? What do you think's going on there? And, and, and how are you doing not doing that, whatever that is? And, if you, and, and man, if you're older than five years old, I think you start realizing there's something in me that's broken. There's something in me that I, it's not like I make mistakes, like I literally want to do the wrong thing sometimes. I, I put mistakes on the calendar, like I'm planning them next week. Those aren't mistakes anymore, right? These are called sins. And I think we all know it. Whether you want to call it sin or that sounds too churchy for you or whatever, I think we all know I have desires in me that run contrary to what's good for myself and for other people. Not all the time, but sometimes. I lust for things. I have anger about things. I've had to apologize too many times for anger and and, and things with with my family and, and and I think we recognize that there's something broken in us. And the gospel has a way of, over time, restraining some of those urges in us that are not good. And you see this throughout the world wherever the gospel is introduced. It changes the culture. Entire societies shift and adopt different values. And, and, and it restrains some of our worst urges. Um, this is why Jesus died because we're not going to restrain that stuff on our own, that we need his power at work in us. So the gospel retrains and restrains us. And the second thing I think is an implication of this is that the gospel drives us to work for the common good. Paul says it back in, in verse 10 as he describes what's going on. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He's, he's basically saying, hey, I want you to increase in your knowledge for sure. Learn more, grow more, understand more about God. Read, study, pray, all of that. But it needs to bear fruit in every good work. It needs to do something. It needs to flow out of you into action. All knowledge and no action leads to hypocrisy, leads to legalism, leads to arrogance, pride. It's not just the knowledge. It's that you would start applying the thing and doing something with what you've learned from God. And the gospel, this message of Christ, the love of Christ, the, the redemption that we have, that's, that drives us out to work for others and to serve others, to work for the common good. What would it look like 
for you then in your job at where you work, if you're going to work tomorrow, let's say you go to work somewhere, what would it look like if you thought of your job as like godly? Or if you thought of your job as a place to practice your faith? Or you thought of your job as a place to refine your character and help you grow closer to God? Some of you are like, Chris, God ain't anywhere near my job. Like, there's no way. It's an ungodly place. Do you know what we do for a living? You know, whatever, right? But what would it look like? What would shift in you if you thought of your work as this is the work God allows me to do? I get paid for this, but this is work God allows me to do to serve the community, to make it better, to help people, to make, to make society a, a, a better place. What, what would it look like if you thought about that at the hospital or at, in your class or in your office or Capital One or something? What would it look like to see your work environments as a ways to contribute to the common good of our culture? Um, there's actually an opportunity for that coming up on March 3rd. There's a seminar uh, in the morning of March 3rd. It's a Saturday. It's, they've been running this every year. Once a year, it's called Common Good RVA. And it is, uh, and, and this year, and they talk about how you use your work, your vocation to serve the common good of the culture. And this year, the topic is common good for the vulnerable. I think it's a great topic for, for Richmond. And one of the reasons I'm really excited about it this year is that the guy who is speaking and doing most of the teaching that morning is Andy Crouch from Philadelphia. Um, if you were here when I preached about, uh, I did a message back in November called, the, or like, I'm addicted to my smartphone. If you remember that, I referenced Andy Crouch multiple times and how hearing him talk about his usage of technology with his family uh, changed some things for me last year. He's the guy speaking. He's super good. He has a lot to say about that, but about culture making, and it's going to be really good. In fact, so go to Common Good RVA and sign up there. You can go to our church's website or through your app, and you can register for that there, or it'll link you to where you need to go. Sign up for that and be there. It's going to be a great morning. If you want to hear Andy Crouch talk more about technology and family, the night before at Third Church, he's going to be speaking there Friday night at Third. You can register through their website and go hear his whole TechWise family conversation, which will be super good. So uh, we are called to, because of the gospel, we are called to take what we do um, and, and use it for the common good around us. Let me finish up with what Paul says here in this prayer. Continuing on verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul's praying for them and what is he saying? He's saying, man, I hope you get this. I hope you are strengthened by this. I hope you have uh, not just knowledge and wisdom and understanding all those things, but he's like, I, I want you to, to get it, get God's power at work so that you have endurance and patience with joy because suffering is coming. Pain is inevitable and it's coming for you. It was coming for them and it's still true for us. You're gonna go through awful, hard, painful stuff that you just wish you wouldn't go through and Paul knows that too and he says, my prayer for you is that you will dig your roots deep now that you'll, you'll be filled with knowledge and wisdom and God's power now so that you can endure the pain. Because the pain is coming, and uh, I think Richard Rohr says pain is either uh, transmitted, so you're going to transmit it to someone else, or it is transformative. It'll change you, and it can change you in a really good way when, you, when you're in, in the community working with you, working with you through, through the pain. So I think that's, 
key for us to remember that God's power is at work with us and can help us endure. I don't know what's coming for me. I don't know what pain is in, down the road. I, people ask me, someone asked me the other day a lot about my five-year plan. I'm like, I don't, I mean, is North Korea going to do something to us in the next five years? I don't even, I can't, I can't even plan for sure, like, what's going to happen. And I don't know what's going to happen for my family. I don't know if they're going to be okay. I don't know if people that I know and love are going to be around. Or, like, I don't know. Um, but whatever happens, I need to dig my roots deep now and, and, and learn how to endure um, and, and, and stay dialed into God here and now and be filled with knowledge and grow so that I can handle whatever is coming my way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you um, fill us with your knowledge and power, that you um, speak to us, that you retrain us, that you restrain us and you push us out to work for the common good. God, I thank you for the gospel, this counter-narrative to our culture, to every culture, that, that challenges us at points and speaks to us and, um, and helps us to grow. I, I pray as we study through Colossians that we dig into these verses and that, um, th- that we are, are, are transformed in this process, that we learn and we become something that you have always seen in us and believed we could be. God, I thank you for friends and family in this room who, um, who are engaging in this, who are wading into the messiest stuff of life and um, who can come out of the mess on the other side still trusting, still hoping, still believing in you despite the pain. Thank you, Lord. Uh, we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.